Welcome to Voices of Experience radio show and podcast. Be sure to subscribe to the Voices of Experience podcast wherever you find your favorite podcasts. No promotional fees have been paid to anyone appearing on Voices of Experience. Now, on with the show. Welcome to Voices of Experience on KIXI AM 880. And KKNW 1150 AM, you probably know that if you're listening to it on either radio station. But I also want to remind you that if you want to hear my podcast, you can do that as well of this show or shows going back 299 shows. Isn't that something? We're <laughs> closing in on our 300th show. So anyhow, all you need to do is Google Voices of Experience, click down a few Voices of Experience, there's a Daniels College and something else, and then Voices of Experience on Apple. And again, you can hear every episode we've ever done here. Eric Crema, how are you today? I'm doing great. I'm still blown away. 300 episodes just about there. That's crazy. You know, it's it's almost like the conversion for dog years. You know, 300, 300 episodes in radio is like, you know, you're hitting age 50 and it's a human. <laughs> it's, it's a long time. I don't get that, Eric, but that's okay. That's all right. It, it, works, in my, it works in my head. Is okay, dog well, year seven, that, seven years seven years to one or something like that? I don't know. Right. Okay. So I'm I'm kind of getting that now. So um, Eric Ryder, how are you? Hey, good afternoon, Paul. I'm doing great. Happy Valentine's Day to you. Thank you, and thank. We're going to talk about that in just a few moments now. But um, I got a little Valentine's Day event that occurred today, and um, Mike here, who's producer of the show down here in Palm Springs right now talked he was from Chicago and that is fitting into one of my voices of history today segments so uh, I think we'll I know what you're talking moment. about yeah, yeah. I know Eric you always do <laughs> hey I'm a history buff just like you sir I know I know that's good it's good stuff so you know that even with that hint I just had to say Chicago well, we're going to have uh, on the show today a woman by the name of Jane Bolware, and uh, she grew up very poor in Iowa and became a top executive at Microsoft. I mean, one of the top people. And she wrote a book, and it was, I think it was a very interesting book. And what she had to say, it's called Worthy from Cornfields to Corner Office of Microsoft. It's more than a rags-to-rich story. It's something that I think she really imparted some really important information. So I'm just going to let you listen to the interview, and that's coming up in about uh, 10, 12 minutes. Neil's Meandering Musings for today. That's Neil Peterson's Meandering Musings. Gas prices. He went to a station that had the highest gas prices anywhere he's ever seen in the United States. It's not in Washington. It's actually in California. So he's going to talk about that today. Now we move Voices of History, Valentine's Day, historical footnotes. In 1929, this event occurred. And uh, Mike, do you have any idea what I may be talking about? Nope. He says no. So um, what? Valentine's Day massacre. You got it. All right. So we jumped into that. And I think, Eric, you had that right, didn't you? Yes. Yeah, that's what I was thinking of. Okay. A couple other things that happened uh, this week, 50 years ago this week, the fishing industry in the state of Washington changed forever. 
And do you know what that is? Anybody? Eric or Eric? The fishing industry changed forever in 1950. No, no, 50 years ago, about oh, 1974, okay. there was a major shift in how fish were caught in the state of Washington. Uh, I don't, I have no idea. Okay, we'll move on then. You stumped you. Yeah. Good. Now, this one's kind of cool, and it happened in 1968, and it was called Pickleball. That's when it was born, and it was born in Bainbridge Island, Washington. And now, of course, it's a worldwide sensation. It's everywhere. But a former congressman from the state of Washington was the one who invented Pickleball with a couple of friends. So we'll talk about that. Timeless classic for today, the number one song on the charts for two weeks in a row in this year. It uh, was the third number one song for this group. The Timeless Classics we're going to play later in the show. So uh, what else? We're going to be talking about self-employment. I try to do that quite a bit on the program. I'm going to extend that out a little bit more today. And I call it solopreneurs. I don't call it that. That term came up several years ago, or at least for me it did. And now I understand because it's kind of what I did as far as business. So I'll get into that a little bit more. I'm going to talk about, one, a personality trait that I think if you're considering going into business for yourself that you need, I have about 20 that I list. Today, I'll talk about one of the ones that I think is very important. That's being decisive. And then um, also, I think there's some myth around this suggestion, and that is the first thing you need to do when you go into business for yourself is to write a business plan. Um, I don't think that's the number one most important thing. It's important, but it's not even close to being the top. So we'll talk about that as well. What's Voices of Experience all about? I think you got a hint from the introduction, but we interview people with experience. That's our really guiding uh, light here in public affairs, travel, fitness, education, entertainment, and with an emphasis, as we're talking about today, entrepreneurship. So uh, let's see, and, and if you hear anything on the show today that you want to comment on, you can call the Voices of Experience Message Center at 425-653-1166. Or if there's something you want us to cover, let us know. That phone number is 425-653-1166. And um, just keep it short if you can. Don't ramble on like I do. And then we'll try to get it on the air. All right, so we'll be back right in a moment. We're going to be talking about of solopreneurship, entrepreneurship in the first segment today. All right, so that was a really quick little break there. I got to do all the work here. So you both, Eric's, chime in here for me. If I, You've been hearing me talking about this, so if there's anything I need to sharpen up or you don't understand, please stop me or, or make your comments too because you're around a lot of people who are self-employed as well. Yeah. What I, I, talk, uh, I was going to say, that? what I really like about this segment, Paul, is the fact that you dispel a lot of myths. And uh, so I'm anxious to hear what you have today. Well, the uh, I call this myth number three. It was in my book, myth number three. And I talked about it a little bit, the importance of a business plan. And what I submit is that, and it's an, not an entire myth, but it, the emphasis of it is, and uh, again, the first thing you need to do, I believe that's the very last thing you should consider. A couple things in play and why I talk about it that way is that you want to have a concept first that has a fighting chance. 
you can run a start a business and think you have this wonderful business plan, but if there's not a market out there or you don't know how to sell, you don't know other things, nothing's going to happen for you. 80% of small businesses fail. I've heard that figure probably the most prominent. I've heard 90%. I don't think it's that high. I don't think it's 50%. 80% sounds about right to me. And I think what you really need to do, and I've learned this myself the hard way, if you're sitting down and you want to be an entrepreneur, what you want to do is think of a niche, something that's not being served. Walk around, be alert. And if there's something maybe you want that's not there, that that's a niche that has a chance. And number two, someone told me this several years later, and I really took it to heart, is solving a problem. Then you're, you're immediately, your prospects for success get much better. I mean, they're much stronger if you can do those two things. Um, and that's why I really talk about this a lot. And the thing is, people have said, and that's another myth I talk about another time, follow your passion and the money will follow. That is not true. And that's why people get off to a very bad start. And that's kind of what I did. I kept it going, but it was a lot harder to make that work than doing some other things later that I did uh, in my life. So I'm submitting is that, again, when you're sitting down, you look at something that you're trying to, again, come into meeting a, a niche that hasn't been met so far. And again, sometimes it come to you. This is an old example, but There was a woman who, I think she moved not far from you, Eric, Gig Harbor or somewhere in that area. And she tried to find a print shop. And this, again, this is dated, but there was none there. Well, she started a print shop. There it was. And she was very successful. successful. I don't think it was Gig Harbor. It was close to there, though. Any comments so far on what I'm saying? Am I losing you or are you no, going, what is this you guy know, rambling about? You've also talked about doing things that people don't necessarily want to do, uh, like cleaning up their junk in the garage and hauling that away. And, and I think that's important, too. A lot of people look for, as you say, the glamour or it's always been something, a, a dream of mine to do that. When sometimes the good idea is staring you in the face if you open your eyes. Right. And I was going to say something about your passion is becoming an entrepreneur. That's big enough. Right. Like you can work for someone, you can go into education, you work for the government, whatever. But my passion was becoming an entrepreneur. I went through, I worked for the government, I worked for private industry, I worked for local and state government, both of those, worked for a PR firm, whatever. I hit the road at the end of that saying, none of this is working. And then I said, in my early 30s, let's just look at starting a business. It never occurred to me to do that. So the entrepreneurship, because you want that independence, that is your passion. What you do is second. Is that making sense? Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. And I think people hit the Google, you know, they go to the Google and start typing things in about businesses and whatnot. And there's not a lot of great information there. There are some gems. But one thing they can do is go to your website and learn about your books, because a lot of what you talk about here, you've written. It's written down. And they can find out about how they can get those books is self-employment for you and pre-flight checklist. I think these are really important. And it's written by someone who has lived it. And I think that's important too, Paul, because a lot of times you can get armchair advice 
from someone who's never been in business. Yeah, I didn't, you know, call the, you know, Kansas City Chiefs and say, this is what you should do in your next play. <laughs> I, you know, I played you five football. You weren't responsible for that win? No. It, you know, I mean, they knew what they were doing. So I let them proceed. Big of me, I know. Well, t- people should definitely be going to VoicesOfExperience.com to learn more. VoicesOfExperience.com, that's your website. And take that self-employment quiz because it's free. It's kind of fun, actually. And when you're done with it, it's going to make you think, am I right to be an entrepreneur? Or maybe I should just learn a new skill and stay in my industry or, or move out of the industry but continue to be employed by someone else. Right. That's exactly right. And there's a quiz that comes along with that. And the higher you score on that quiz, the higher your prospects for success. And I've had people take the quiz and they say, I can do this. And I've had people take the quiz and go, ah, it's not for me. I went on both parts of that. I'm not trying to convince someone to do it. That's what's different. So you want to be an entrepreneur, right? I'm not saying you want to do this. There's pros and cons to everything. So I write about the cons too. There are things like that. So the quiz, can you do these things? And it's up to you. And then um, if the quiz helps you make that decision, all the better. Eric, Eric, any thoughts from you? No, I just, uh, I, I think these are great points. Yeah. Because yeah. I know you, you you have a band. That, and, that's and that right. Is, <laughs> and that is definitely an entrepreneurial venture. Yes. You know, so you've got some experience there. Yeah. Uh, well, there's lots of competition and, you know, we're not necessarily profitable, but uh, we're doing the things that we love and uh, <laughs> the money isn't necessarily following. But sometimes, you know, if you're, uh, if you love a thing enough, it's worth doing regardless of That's whether true. it pays off. So the pay comes in other ways. Yeah, exactly. Right. That's very true. And that that's a lot of it. So one more comment on a business plan. On, I'll just mentioning and why I'm not so excited about those is that you have to have a very flexible personality. And I talk about that next week. But, you know, you can make the best business plan in the world no matter what you're doing. But what you can anticipate are ups and downs. For example, you know, lived through 9-11, that changed a lot of business projections. You live through COVID, things change dramatically. You can have the best business plan in the world, but you have to have fallback positions that if these things happen, so you want to choose a business that can be recession-proof as possible, that should be in part of your formula. So that's what I'm submitting. Think that way too. I'm not trying to be negative or a Debbie Downer here, but it's a reality that things go up and they come down. Are you positioned to come down and what business can you be most resistant to falling under when a recession hits, which it will hit. It's just a matter of when and have you done that. So anyhow, if you have the best business plan in the world, again, it will not save you if you haven't built the fort strong enough to withstand it. There's an example I remember reading in the New York Times right after COVID started and it was a restaurant in Manhattan somewhere. I can't remember the name of it, but it was an old one around the turn of the century, the last century, not this century. We're back in the 1800s. Wow. They remodeled, put millions of dollars in. It was five days away from opening and everything was shut down in New York for a year. So I don't know what that means, but it's kind of like things you have to prepare for things. How can you prepare for that? I don't know. But my example is, I guess, things, things happen. So I uh, just want to move on quickly to a question that is in the book, and that's question number five. And this goes to your personality trait. 
I'm going to give a brief story. I think it relates. You can decide that if you want. Uh, Bruce Nordstrom, he was the uh, CEO of Nordstrom in Seattle. He taught me a valuable lesson, I feel, about being decisive. It wasn't directly relating to business, but it, it changed me in business like he was. I mean, the CEO of Nordstrom, he kind of knew what he was doing. But the way I met him was when I was had my previous job working for Metro Transit. I was the uh, public affairs director for the project, and I shared a committee of retailers downtown Seattle because we're going to build a big tunnel through downtown Seattle. A lot of people going, what are you doing? Bruce Norson was one of them, so he joined this committee. And so I provided him staff report and so on. So I'd get in touch with him now and then, and sometimes more than others. But I would call him, and what struck me the first time is that the phone rang once, he lifts it up, Bruce Nordstrom. And I went, oh, and I just kind of paused. And I, I, I expected to go through a secretary, why are you calling, you know, the whole stuff. Bruce Nordstrom, Paul Casey, yeah, I think I know you. What is this about? And I said, well, you know, we're do, the downtown committee's doing this, and what we want to do is have a meeting and have you chair a, a separate task force and what it's going to do to the streets of downtown. Can you do that? I get a five-second pause. And I almost think he hung up. <laughs> and then he would go, no. I don't have, yeah, I, I, I can't do it. Okay, bye-bye. I'd call him another time, could you do this? Five-second pause. Mm. Yes, I can do that. He, there wouldn't be any part of, well, let me think this over and get back to you in about a week. Can I do that? Um, he was on the spot, made the decision. There was no interference talking to him directly. And everything I just talked about now, I learned with the conversation with him, maximum conversation time, 30 seconds. And sometimes I think when we go to, you know, trying to, um, you know, do the messaging and Twittering and things like that, I'm still the school of thought with my experience with him. Sometimes it's just better to pick up the phone. And just call someone. You don't have to make a 20-minute conversation. But I find myself going back and forth with people a lot when you could have solved the question a lot quicker. That's a side comment. But that's my thing about um, Bruce Nordstrom and why I think being decisive and not hesitating a lot is something that I think uh, the more you're that type of person, your stronger possibility of succeeding, whatever you do. That's why I had that long-winded explanation for that. Yeah, I think Anything else, guys? I think it's really sage advice. Uh, you know, sometimes you get that analysis paralysis where you just don't move forward for fear of anything, failure, uh, extra work, making the wrong decision. But, you know, you are where you are because of your own faculties. And when a question like that is posed, I love it. Pause, think it over, make a decision and be done. There you go. So, um, well, I guess enough of this for now. Unless uh, you guys really want me to talk about it for the next 45 minutes. Now, we'll, we'll move on to the other stuff. All right. Jane Bulware is going to be coming up in just a few moments. So let's uh, segue into that. You just received some startling news. You're going to need brain surgery. 
but the doctor also says your prospects for total recovery are excellent. The doctor is very confident with his prognosis. He's performed hundreds of similar surgeries during his career. Who would you choose, this doctor or another doctor who's never performed this type of surgery? If the doctor who's performed similar surgeries is your choice, then experience is important to you. That's what Voices of Experience with Paul Casey is all about. People with experience in their chosen fields. Topics explored including public affairs, self-employment, travel, health and fitness, history, and adventure. Welcome to this edition to Voices of Experience. My name is Paul Casey. Voices of Experience is simulcast on AM 880 KIXI and 1150 AM KKNW on Wednesdays at 3 p.m. Voices of Experience is also rebroadcast on Kixie Sunday mornings at 11 a.m. Visit VoicesOfExperience.com and take a five-minute self-employment quiz. The higher you score on the quiz, the higher your prospects for success. That's VoicesOfExperience.com. All right, we're back, and um, that promo is just what this show is about, and I won't go into it too great a detail because I think it explains it pretty well. But yes, who would you rather have, experience or someone who's doing whatever the first time? If your life's on the line, I know what I want. Anyhow, uh, Jane Bulware is an individual. I haven't met her, but I did have this phone interview with her. And again, as I mentioned at the beginning, she's written a book, Worthy, from cornfields to corner office at Microsoft. We talked about her growing up very poor in the cornfields of rural Iowa. Her expectations were very high, very low as a matter of fact. And, um, but she said growing up in that experience, and she'll talk about it too, she became very self-reliant at an early age. And she knew what hard work was about because she started at a very early age. Jane now lives in Bellevue, Washington. So let's get on with my discussion with Jane. I would like you to describe, first of all, your journey from rural Iowa to becoming a top Microsoft executive. I was born the fourth kid in a one-bedroom house in rural Iowa and started working before I could write sentences. And I was born in a family that where education wasn't valued is because we were very blue-collar. I think I was 16 before I got to Des Moines and saw a town of any size and 25 before I saw the ocean. We didn't have... A lot of money and everybody was expected to pitch in so you started supporting yourself at a very young age and the message to me was clear you can do anything you want so long as you can pay for it yourself or as long as you can get there yourself and so my family wasn't one to really have conversations about what do you want to be when you grow up or any of those things gosh maybe i should go to college because i knew that i didn't want to stay in the town that i was growing up in i left for college before my parents knew i was gone i told my dad that i wanted to get a degree I wanted to go to college and he laughed because that was what, that was an us them thing. That's what those people did, not what we did. So I went to Iowa State University, which was two left turns out of my driveway. I got a degree in forestry, which in Iowa, there's a whole whopping maybe four trees in all of, of Iowa, but uh, that's what I pursued and got, got a degree there. And it turned out to be a doorway to a life that I didn't honestly no existence. The advantages of uh, growing up in a small town, it seems like you don't have a lot of noise, let's say in an urban environment, but that kind of was a plus for you in a sense that once you got some backing, it seems to me that then you just jumped at it, this new world opening up for you. I think of the lack of expectations for me growing up, meaning I had no limitations. Nobody told me what I could do, but nobody told me what I couldn't do. And so in my mind, 
it was a matter of hard work. If you worked hard enough, you could do it. And no one, I didn't think of anything as something I couldn't do, which was really terrific. You didn't get encouragement to do things per se, to reach for the stars or whatever. Nobody told you what you couldn't do. It's interesting when you grow up in a, a small community and you don't realize what's not normal. You don't realize maybe um, I have, I, in my book, I think I've had every job, almost every job imaginable. I mean, I, I have worked in just about every blue collar job you can imagine. And I started supporting myself at a very, very early age. Um, I think I had a checkbook when I was in third or fourth grade um, because that's when I bought a horse and I had to pay t- pay attention to buying the feed and the rent and so on for the horse. So, yeah, I, I do think that forged my perspective, which is that I am not going to be limited by my circumstances. When I went to work at Kimberly Clark, I got a hold of the recruiter who was uh, recruiting at Purdue University for engineers, and I told him I wanted to work for Kimberly Clark. And he said, "We don't recruit at Kimberly Clark for MBAs, and we are full up in our, you know, in our docket for. We've already hired all the people going to have for marketing this year." And he didn't know it, but I was thinking to myself, "I really like Kimberly Clark, and I, I want to work there. We're going to make that happen." And so I invited him for coffee, and then eventually that led to an interview and eventually that became a, a job that was just a really the company was as great as I had hoped it would be. When I offered the job to work in Latin America, I was 30 years old. I was a female in a Latino culture. I was white. I didn't speak Spanish. I had a one and a half year old child and there were all the reasons in the world that I shouldn't do this or be successful at it. But as always happens, there's great people that help you along the way. And, um, I do believe, generally speaking, if you work hard enough at something or if you are open to and are able to leverage the strengths and skills and contribute to that of others, you're going to be successful. It's interesting you were so sheltered in the way of doing this, but then you're fearless in taking like a job at 30 years old with a child in Latin America. I actually, my initial response was to say, no, I can't do this. And it was my husband at the time who said, what do we have to lose? Let's do this. I'll, I'll help. I'll take care of our child and you can, I literally commuted to and from South America, left on Monday, was gone through the week and came back on the weekend. From there, I went and, and had the opportunity to manage the Scott business, which at the time was the largest merger in the history of the United States with Kimberly Clark. What is your definition of success? It's not anything that can be measured in a bank account or read on a title or put on LinkedIn. It's have I made the most, have I given the most of what I got to give? Have I given the most to the people I care and work with? Have I given the most to the job in terms of being, applying my skills? And have I done my best to bring out the best in other people? You were living in Wisconsin. Couple kids, as I recall, we were talking about this Mm -hmm. and a husband. And you were there when you were recruited by Microsoft. Tell us about that. Keep in mind, I've been married 40 years to my high school sweetheart. So he and I are cut from the same cloth. And we always said when we got, we got married very young, had no money, literally stole food sometimes to eat. But, but we always said that we never wanted to be fat, dumb, and happy. We never wanted to be so comfortable that we said, oh, that would never work when somebody comes to us with a new or uncomfortable idea. I'm in Wisconsin. Microsoft is on the Pacific Northwest. My children are in, you know, about to enter first and fifth grade. 
And I said no. Bill Gates and Steve Ballmer. And after several months of them calling me back and calling me back about marketing and marketing in their consumer business, uh, they sent an Xbox to my children. <laughs> and my husband, I came home from work and he said, look, you need to either tell these guys to pound salt and stop calling or you need to you need to go talk to them. And I called the recruiter and within days I was flying from London to interview what would become my eventual boss. And from there I went to back to talk to the executives at Microsoft. Didn't even go back to Wisconsin. Went directly from London, did not pass go, did not collect two hundred dollars, went to directly to here to Seattle to interview with Microsoft and within uh, a month. I was relocated. My kids were enrolled in a new school and I was starting a new job at Microsoft. So the reason we did that wasn't because of the pay or any of those other things, although that was nice. My husband and I literally said, I'm 40 years old. There's no further place I can go at my or at Kimberly Clark. And we are very comfortable in our life. And too comfortable. What do we have to lose? We're going to shake it up and we're not going to allow ourselves to be complacent and be too comfortable in our lives. And that's more than any other reason why we took the job at Microsoft. And then boy, oh boy, did we become uncomfortable. So what are you doing now? I am failing at retirement, according to my husband. I retired and left Microsoft uh, at the age of 52 and intended to be maybe to pursue a few other things. And, and in reality, I love business. I am motivated and enjoy people and setting people up for success. And so I, I follow the adage that says, um, or the blessing that says, may your passion and purpose be your life's work. And by that token, I'll probably stop working when I stop, when I stop working, I'll stop breathing. So my passion and purpose right now is um, helping to lift other people up and helping them realize their capabilities and their worth. I work with the Boys and Girls Club. I'm the chairman of the board for the Boys and Girls Club here in Bellevue and help guide that through COVID. The purpose of the book is to tell very honest stories of overcoming some of the obstacles, some of the things that I've learned, and the process of getting from here to there in a way that was approachable and relatable so anyone from any circumstances could feel confident and think about kind of reimagining what they think might be possible for themselves. Welcome to today's Voices of History. 80% of New Orleans, including much of downtown, is underwater. The Big Easy's famous Canal Street, living up to its name. Apparently a plane has crashed into the World Trade Center in New York. I just saw another plane coming in from the side. You did. I did. That was out of absolute Yes, and that's you. the second explosion. So pretty dramatic Voices of History introduction for today. Uh, just before we get to that, I did want to let you know that that was Jane Bolwer again, who did that interview. And her book is called Worthy for Cornfields to Corner Office of Microsoft. And let me do that again. Worthy from Cornfields to Corner Office of Microsoft. It's now out in paperback. And again, I think she mentioned all the proceeds of the book will go to the Boys and Girls Clubs of America and uh, will be earmarked for scholarships. If you would like to pursue this or find out more about Jane's, Jane uh, Bolware, just Google Jane Bolware. And that is uh, B 
O-U-L-W-A-R-E. Scroll down a couple people and you'll find her, her book and about her history. Jane Bolware, B-O-U-L-W-A-R-E. Boy, tell you, she's pursued by Microsoft. You know, Bill Gates is calling her. (laughs) I had the same situation with Bill. I had to get my phone changed because he was harassing me so much to go to work there. I, it was, it was tough time, but, um, you know, that's pretty amazing. What, what a interesting story. I I just thought she was a very fascinating person. I like what you said about not getting complacent. And when you do, when you feel that it's time for a change. That's right. I really enjoyed some of her advice. So voices of history for today. On February 14th, 1929, Al Capone's mobsters took out members of a rival gang in a Chicago warehouse. It was called the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. There was a movie about uh, this event. It was made in 1967 and it was called Valentine's Day Massacre. And uh, essentially it was about the Irish North Siders that... um, was headed by George Bugs Moran, an Italian rival led by Al Capone. And uh, Al Capone was a suspect in doing this, but he was never charged or never convicted of this, either one. But anyhow, this occurred in 1929. And has legend has it that in this date, 278, St. Valentine was beheaded in Rome. Eef. I didn't know that. The Roman emperor wanted a bachelor army that had banned marriage for the young, a priest. Valentine married many young couples before he was imprisoned. He reportedly fell in love with his jailer's daughter and wrote a farewell note and signed, love your Valentine, and a tradition was born. Wow, I never knew that. Maybe they should have celebrated his birthday instead of the day of his beheading, and then maybe Valentine's yeah. Day wouldn't be so violent. <laughs> I know. I try to keep it positive. You know, I go through a lot of historical things, like you know, the Zeppelin blew up today, and I kind of right. pass on those. But yeah, I, I kind of go. You're right. I had the same reaction. I, I going. I think I've not done this for that reason, but I said, "Oh, the heck with it." I'll do it this way today. <laughs> but leave it to commercialism to turn it into this massive <laughs> right. thing. Right. Yeah. You're buying candy, flowers, and cards. Yeah. yeah. Closer to home. In 1892, Tacoma put into service the first electric trolley in the state of Washington. It had replaced horse-drawn carriages. Mm-hmm. Trolleys were in existence along Tacoma streets until the 1930s. The automobiles kept increasing in popularity. The streetcars made their final run in 1938. And now they're back with the streetcar, right? Yeah. Eric? Now we're, we're spending millions <laughs> to put them back in. Yeah. <laughs> we, we could have left them in. If only we'd known. Only we'd okay. Known. I just have a thought there. You want to be an entrepreneur, go into becoming a consultant for highway and rail projects. You'll make a lot of money. That I missed if I go back on that. <laughs> Seriously. Absolutely. All right, let's see. On February 13th, I mentioned this earlier, in 1968, Joel Pritchard and several of his friends incorporated Pickleball. Picket, pickleball. Pickleball. Thank yeah. you, Pickleball. Does I'm it say why they pick- why they named it Pickleball there, by the way? I don't think I've no, ever No, they heard. named it. I changed it. It's called Picketball. Picketball now. <laughs> now okay. 
All right, well, I'll, I'll let him. We'll keep the name for a while. No, I, it didn't actually. Pick uh, pickleball on Bainbridge Island. Joel Pritchard served as Washington State Legislator, Lieutenant Governor, and Congressman. And pickleball became Washington's official sport on May t- March twenty eighth, two thousand twenty two. I didn't know that. I got to tell you though, Paul, I'm not a big fan. So we have uh, about four pickleball courts right behind my house. Oh, and, I've heard. I and think I know my goodness, going. yeah, they these people are they're fanatic. I mean, they get up at like five, six in the morning in the oh, summer. I've heard this, and they're out because they have to get to the court fast, otherwise they're taken. And right. yeah, they're out there at five thirty, dink, 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 dink. You know, and that's what I'm hearing waking up. Oh, I've heard this, Eric. I feel so sorry <laughs> for you. That would drive me crazy. <laughs> I, yeah. I read it about in the New York Times maybe two months ago that there's a lot of these being built around, you know, apartments and things. The same thing. It starts at five in the morning, goes all day. It's driving people nuts. Yeah, that's crazy. Well, but. well, back on the name thing, according to Joan Pritchard, uh, Joel Pritchard's wife, the name of the game became Pickleball after I said it reminded me of the pickle boat in crew where oarsmen were chosen from the leftovers of other boats. Other sources state that the name Pickleball was derived from the name of the Pritchard's family dog, Pickles. I'm guessing it's yeah, probably it's after dog. the dog. It's the dog. <laughs> it's the dog. Since I'm a dog lover, I'll go with that, too. Yeah. <laughs> Pickles. Come here, Pickles. That, that was a long way of getting there. I wouldn't have guessed that. No, but, yeah, me neither. Know. But it, that that's fascinating that uh, we've given you know the world a popular sport. I mean, yes. when you think of all the huge companies that have come out of this region, Microsoft, of course, and Starbucks and all those and the famous musicians and, and singers and uh, artists that have all come out of here. Uh, it's it's just fun to think, hey, we've also contributed as a sport. Yeah, so it's no longer going to be um, the Space Needle, you know, Seattle's mark. It will be the pickleball courts. Pickleball. A lot <laughs> right. of people will hate us for that, too. I'm sure they will. <laughs> Wasn't there some controversy going on right now in West Seattle out by you, Paul, with, with some courts they want to put in? I believe you're right. Yeah. I didn't. We'll have to look into article. that. We'll follow up on that hot story. Please do. Please do. <laughs> have it removed by the time I return. Yeah. All right. Let's see. What else do we have here? This is um, also the week um, the territorial governor, Isaac Stevens. You remember him, don't you, Eric? Oh, yeah. Both yeah. Back coffee, in 1887. You know, Native American Indians had fishing rights. We were coming in. We worked out a deal. Now, we, the governor, did say, hey, you know, we're all school. You're going to be able to fish all you want. Um, but the rights of doing that were whittled away over the next uh, 100 years. And in the 1960s, it took that long, Native Americans took a cue from the civil rights movement. They said, we want to fish in the waters that we established long before you were here. And... Um, they violated the state permits that were not legal, and they did it without state permits. Actor Marlon Brando and comedian Dick Gregory came to the state of Washington, joined in the fight, and it became national news. Then, 50 years ago this week, George Bolt, the judge, made a decision on February 12, 1974. The treaty rights were reaffirmed and it established the tribal governments as co-managers of Washington fisheries. I think everybody who's grown up here pretty much knows about that. Yeah, and it's a huge industry. Um, the number one fishery in the state is uh, Dungeness crab. 
followed closely by salmon. So it was really important for them, not not only just, you know, due to their, their rights to fish it and their heritage and their traditions, but also I believe it's a good revenue source for tribes as well. Certainly is. Last one on February 9th, 1969, the first Boeing 747 took off from Payne Field, Everett. So that's it. Voices of history for today. That was a good one, Paul. All right. You have been listening to Voices of History. If you have historical events that you would like to share, call the Voices of Experience hotline at 425-653-1166. That's 425-653-1166. Dr. Dan DeLucy, he's a chiropractor with his office in downtown Seattle. Um, I wanted to talk to him about myths and realities of chiropractors. They referred to a lot as bone crunchers. A lot of people fear that in going to a chiropractor. I've been doing it for 20 years. In full disclosure, Dr. DeLucy is my chiropractor. I'm a believer and and whatever. So I just wanted to, it's about a two-minute uh, segment, just and take on chiropractic and see if it's for you. Here it goes. I think stretching is a huge, huge thing because we are so sedentary in our professions and in our daily habits that we like to be sedentary. And then we go from sedentary, from zero to 100 miles an hour when we're working hard and we're stressing out. And so a lot of that tension in our bodies, in our minds, from anxiety, from work deadlines, from family relationships, finances, all these things stress us out sometimes. And so stretching is an easy way to help slow down how your body's functioning and help get the mobility that you need that helps rehydrate your bones and ligaments and helps them be healthier. What is the biggest myth in your field that people just don't understand? I think people don't understand how important it is to get their body moving. As a chiropractor, we help with the nervous system and moving the bones around and helping the bones move in a certain way to restore the function of the nervous system. And so the nerves control everything in your body. It controls your heart rate, controls your digestion, the way we secrete hormones, those type of things. And so when there's interference with those nerves, we may have a pinched nerve in our neck that sends signals down our arm. That's something that chiropractors can help take care of to restore that normal function. As we get that normal function back, then your body restores to a state of what we call homeostasis, which means the same state in a nice regulatory state that helps your body function normally. One of the biggest myths that I continue to hear is associated with being a chiropractor and the practice of that and bone cruncher. I still hear that. <laughs> yes. So the bone crushing or the bone popping or whatever the sound is there, we don't really focus on the noise that happens during the adjustment or the movement of the bones because our goal is to move the bones to help the nervous system function better. We have to look at the sound that comes out when we are adjusting your body with anything like popping your knuckles or you get up in the morning and your ankles crack. Those things are just gas pressure being released from your body. And so as we move those bones around, sometimes that sound will come out and it will cause that popping sensation or popping noise. That's just a byproduct of the bones moving themselves. All right. So there you have it. That's Dr. Dan DeLucci. He's been uh, specializing in injuries, lower back pain, neck pain, headaches, work injuries, whatever. And just to let you know, if you have any interest in him or anybody else, chiropractor, he's located in downtown Seattle. But again, there are a lot of great chiropractors out there. The highest gas price in the United States. A couple of days ago, I was driving to Las Vegas from Southern California in my 2007 Jeep Liberty. 
which incidentally has over 200,000 miles on it. I decided not to take the usual route, that being Interstate 15. Eight million people take Interstate 15 each year to and from Las Vegas from Southern California. 42,143 cars a day pass the state line between Nevada and California. State Road 95 is much further east than I-15, closer to the Colorado River, and for most of its route is just two lanes, one lane in each direction. Compared to the I-15 route, very few drivers take SR-95. Rather than take the I-15, I decided to take the back way, which winds through 280 miles of uninhabited desert, portions of the Mojave and Sonoran deserts, an area of the United States that is truly breathtaking in its starkness, its emptiness, its expanse, its almost total lack of human activity of any kind. On the start and end of this road trip, there are good-sized solar farms. But for almost all of the 280 miles of the route, you see desert, sand, and barren mountains in the distance. There are no homes, no farms, no businesses, no gas stations, no streetlights, no stop signs, no sidewalks, no people, no animals that are visible, no road signs, no advertisements. There is seemingly nothing. The reality, of course, is that there is quite a bit of plant and animal life in the desert, but that is a story for another time. As I was driving for miles and miles along just a two-lane road, I was struck by the beauty of the expanse of nothingness. It is so barren, so much of a wasteland, so much a no-man's land, so otherworldly. I felt like I was on the moon. The landscape was so haunting. About 120 miles into the road trip, I came across some activity in Vital Junction, the intersection of Route 62 and Route 95. I'm referring to a gas station and a California State Agricultural Screening Station, and that is about it. I stopped at the gas station to replenish my fuel tank in the car, started pumping gas, and about a few minutes into this effort, I just randomly happened to check the gauge on the fuel island, and I was stunned. I have only put 12 gallons of fuel into my car, and yet the charge was over $100. Holy cow! I immediately stopped filling the car with gas. I walked into the very modest mini-mart of the filling station and asked Marie, who was behind the counter, what is the price for a gallon of gas? She responded, $7.79 for regular. Egad, you're kidding, I say. No, sir, I'm not. I say to her, this has to be the highest gas price in the country. She says, no, we are the second highest. I ask her, where is the highest price? She responds immediately with Death Valley. I checked with the gas station in Furnace in Death Valley and Marie is wrong. Right now, the cost of regular gas in Death Valley is $6.37, some $1.42 less than Vital Junction, California. To put this price of gas into perspective, 
Right now in the United States, there are all kinds of newspaper and press reports on how far gas prices have fallen in the last 12 months, down almost 10%. Right now, the average cost of gas in the U.S. is $3.23. The lowest price for a gallon of gas is found in Texas, $2.72, and Mississippi, $2.74. The highest state average is in California, at $4.78. To put the cost of gas in the U.S. into further perspective, I have a friend visiting me from Slovenia in Eastern Europe, and she has reminded me that gas in Europe has been historically and continues to be higher than in the United States. Right now, a gallon of gas in Slovenia, for example, is priced at $6.27. Italy, it is $7.94. Greece, $8.09. Hong Kong's price of gas is $11.60 per gallon. For me, there's several takeaways from this story. One, check the price of gas before you start filling your car with gas at a filling station. Two, if you plan to cross a desert in your car, fill up on gas before you get into the middle of the desert. Three, in the United States, those of us who live on the West Coast are paying significantly more for gas, almost double, than those who live in Texas, Louisiana, Tennessee, and Mississippi. Four, we should keep in mind that compared to many other places in the world, we are paying less than they are. Finally, and most importantly, it is not often that one has the opportunity to spend hours driving through a desert. As much as the gas cost me, and as painful a lesson as this has been, I would not trade anything for the otherworldly experience of trying to take in, absorb, and appreciate the expanse, the desolation, and the beauty of the Mojave and Sonoran Desert. Be sure to subscribe to Meandering Musings wherever you get your favorite podcasts. For more about Neil Peterson and to read more Meandering Musings and travel essays, visit neilstrips.com. That's neilstrips.com. Like the podcast? Help us grow our listenership. Tell your friends about Meandering Musings and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. All right, that's it. We're out of time for today. My name is Paul Casey, your host of Voices of Experience. Thanks for listening. And again, my thanks to Eric Crema and also Eric Ryder and Benny Mathers for helping pull all this together. We'll be back next week. And one of the interviews I'm going to have, it's going to be one I've played about two years ago, but it's on traveling in Ireland, Ireland, excuse me, by Jack Cavanaugh. I think you'll really enjoy that. Quote of the week, if I were to run... As a Republican, they're the dumbest group of voters in the country. They believe anything on Fox News. I could lie, and they'd still eat it up. I bet my numbers would be terrific. Donald Trump, People Magazine, 1998. I'll leave you with that.